0: Hey, everybody, this is Brian. I'm back with another episode of Grief to Growth. And today I've got with me Delphi Ellis. And Delphi has written a really interesting book about sleep. And sleep is a subject that I know is near and dear to a lot of our hearts, especially people that have gone through grief or going through grief. And we're going to talk about some of the myths about sleep today. I just finished her book yesterday. It's a fascinating book. So we'll talk about it and I'll bring her in here in a second. But first, I want to finish your introduction. She's the author of the book is called uh, Answers in the Dark, Grief, Sleep and How Dreams Can Help You Heal. Uh, She's a qualified counselor. She's a well-being trainer and a mindfulness practitioner. And her therapeutic background is in bereavement. And she 's supported mainly those bereaved by murder and suicide. Mm-hmm. She helps people find their mojo and get the sparkle back, especially after a difficult time in their life and their lives. So with that, I want to bring in uh, delphi Ellis welcome to, to grief to growth.
2: Thank you so much for having me today,
0: as I was saying delphi I think this is I know this is a topic that 's near and dear to a lot of our hearts. Um, we're going through a lot of us are going through grief now for various reasons. We're going to talk about what are some grief events that can cause that. But what got you interested in, in dealing with sleep and dreams? So,
2: um, therapeutically, I actually started working with people about 20 years ago. And following my own experience of bereavement, I just naturally kind of moved into that area of wanting to help people find their way through such a difficult time. And it, it just so happened because of the, the the way that I was working with people at the time, the majority of people that I worked with was, as you say, bereaved by murder and suicide. It, it wasn't by design. It just kind of happened that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up um, volunteering and supporting people in coroner's court and supporting people through the inquest process, which was, you know, um, as you can imagine, and at such a devastating time, and as you know. and um, But before that, that. I actually had a, a childhood where I grew up in an environment where we talked about stuff like this. So it was very natural growing up. I remember being asked around the breakfast table what dreams I'd had the night before. Um, and it was only really when I went to school and I was, you know, actively talking about the dreams that I'd had, um, I remember my friends sort of looking at me like, what, what is she talking about? You know, uh, as if uh, as if I was kind of the weird one. But to me, that was perfectly natural. It was it was natural to be talking about our dreams and, and our sleep experiences and the nighttime experiences we have. So so that's really what happened was when I found myself working with people that were grieving very quickly I realized that when the time was right they wanted to first of all they wanted to um as I call it help people get their sparkle back but second of all they wanted to talk to me about the dreams that they were having especially some of the dreams that were so vivid and so clear to them um and they just wanted to find ways forward from that so that's kind of how I fell into it and and, and I've been doing it ever since
0: well, yeah, I think there's, as I said, there's three really interesting topics here. There's grief, there's dreams, and and there's sleep. And I want to, I do want to get deeper into all those. But you mentioned that you had a, a bereavement event yourself. Did that interrupt your sleep when that happened?
2: Yeah, so I was very young when that happened. I was actually 18 years old when my dad died. Um, and it was um, it was one of those it was unexpected when I look back on it now I I know that it it was it was going to happen um but at the time certainly in 18 years old I you know I had I was not ready for that mm-hmm. um and so it did it, it really if I'm being totally honest it changed the whole trajectory of my life I I think had my dad not died when he did um I think I would have probably just um certainly probably not moved into the arena that I'm in now and certainly not with the intensity you know of the work that I do now so um so yeah it's it's fair to say that that experience changed the whole trajectory of my life and so um and at the time yeah I I know for a fact that my dreams and um, and certainly my sleep would would have been you know impacted by that
0: yeah I think you know, it's, um there's it's, sleep is just a weird thing and, and we'll talk about you know how we we all we want to go to sleep but sometimes we have trouble going to sleep and, and we and we our sleep gets disturbed by events like that and again we talked uh, before we start recording my audience is people that have been through grief and a lot of times um, let's talk about how grief can affect our sleep patterns if you if you if you would
2: Yeah, so um, one of the things I talk about in the book is I have this whole section called Undergrief, and it's about recognising that loss shows up for us in so many different ways, even without anybody dying. So we can experience the loss of when um, we're made redundant, for example, from our jobs or when uh, a relationship breaks down. That's the kind of loss that we can experience throughout our lives but because generally speaking, and certainly in the UK, um, Experiences like that just aren't recognised as grief. They're they're seen as these everyday experiences. We just keep calm and carry on, and and try and navigate our way forward without there being any impact. But of course, that's that's not the case. You know, the um, one of the things I talk about is how grief often rests underneath awareness. If we've not been given permission to talk about our grief experiences, however that showed up, whether it was the loss of a loved one, whether it was um, a, the a, the relationship breakdown, divorce, redundancy, all those kind of things, if we haven't been given permission to talk about that loss and how it's affected us, it will just rest underneath awareness. And, of course, during the day, we're very busy keeping ourselves preoccupied so that we don't have to think about the things that are troubling us during the day Um, but one of the quotes I use in the book is that it's like a hole that we dance around during the day but fall into at night so we will find ourselves at night um, you know our bed becomes this magical place that reminds us of all the things we haven't done today but also brings to the surface these experiences that we either haven't processed or we weren't given permission to talk about. And so we find ourselves at night, as I call it in the book, I call it going down the plug hole and it's dark down there. And we can find ourselves in these almost tormented places where we just can't process or navigate these experiences because we're not being given permission to do that during the day. So that for me is how it shows up in our sleep where we would You know, we're having these difficult lifetime experiences. And one of the things that I I make the distinction about in Answers in the Dark is that there are things that we do during the day that we know affect our sleep. You know, we know that if we drink too much caffeine or we exercise before bedtime or, you know, we eat too late, we know that's going to affect our quality of sleep at night. But I talk in the book about situational insomnia, as I as I refer to it. And that's very much it's not so much about what you're doing that's stopping you sleeping, but what's happening to you. And I think that's how that's in the book where I kind of emphasize this, how grief rests underneath awareness and stops us sleeping.
0: Yeah, you talked in the book, you use a term called disenfranchised grief, which is the first time Mm. I've heard that. So explain to me what that is.
2: So disenfranchised grief is essentially where society doesn't accept our reasons for grieving or doesn't consider why we're grieving as a reasonable reason to grieve. Uh, So, for example, um, a, a redundancy or a relationship breakdown society might not accept that as a reasonable reason for us to be upset. So people will often say and I talk a lot about this in the book about how people often come out with these really unhelpful platitudes. Like, you know, there's plenty more fish in the sea or, you know, they they're better off without you. And yet actually when we're in the thick of that pain, those kind of phrases, they they just those clichés don't work for us. Um but yeah, disenfranchised grief is is very much about what society deemed to be unacceptable reasons to grieve and yet they're all valid and and I make this point in the in the book that all grief is valid there may be different experiences of grief and sometimes we might compare our experiences of grief to someone else's sometimes that can be helpful sometimes not but an example of disenfranchised grief that more and more people are recognizing is the death of a pet so when a beloved dog dies that's been part of the family for 15 years um you know i've i've heard so many people have said to me that they've been met with this wall of but it's just an animal and of course, to that person grieving, that pet was so, so, so much more than that. And so um, that's an example of disenfranchised grief and how it shows up where, you know, I've um, I've known of people in the LGBTQ community where, you know, uh, a woman's wife has died and her family have, you know, said really unhelpful things to her like, well, at least now you can have a proper marriage because they didn't accept the marriage that that, that she had before. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's an example. Example of how these um, you know these these experiences can show up and, and that society doesn't acknowledge or accept that person's reason for grieving. and of course that in itself, causes then the grief to go underground. If that person doesn't feel that they can grieve for the person that they've loved and lost, then they their grief will go underground. And that in itself can lead to other problems. You know, inhibited grief, for example, is an example of how our grief shows up as a physical illness because we haven't been able to process it, we haven't been able to talk about it, and so we might become unwell. So, yeah, that disenfranchised grief is something I'm seeing more and more of where people just don't, um, just aren't given permission by society to grieve for the things that they've lost and loved.
0: Yeah, I I, I thought that was a, a great point you made in the book and, and how we can, even things that other people might not see as a loss that we could see as a loss. And then, and and if, as you said, every feeling is valid, you know, mm-hmm. so for people to invalidate what was just a pet or, you know, people even moving, you know, and losing losing friends that you might've had in the past, people might say, well, you didn't really lose them, but, it's, just, it's a, it's a change and it feels like a loss. If it feels like a loss, it really is.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly that. And, and I think the point you made about moving home, for example, one of the things I talk about in the book is when a child leaves home to go to university or to college. And, um, you know, so many, certainly mums I speak to will say that, you know, they talk about this empty nest syndrome where that, you know, they've got this empty house or this empty room. And for them, it it is a loss, it is a bereavement. Um, And I've known, you know, parents that have cried and cried. Even though, as you said, even though that child is still available to them, you know, with the aid of modern technology, that that child is just a, a Zoom call or a, or a telephone call away. Um, but they're, nevertheless, it's it's that whole thing about what it means for that child to leave home and, and, and begin a new life elsewhere. So it's valid. and I, And I think it's so important as a society that we recognise that as grief and that we talk about it as such. It's not the same as perhaps another person's grief, but it's still valid.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree. And I remember when my daughter graduated from high school and went to college, and uh, it was a grief event for me, and I I cried. And you're, and and it's like because it's it's not that they're not available to you. It's end of a phase. It's 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 a change of of status in your life. You know, they're never going to they'll come home and they'll visit, but now it's a visit. It's different. And so I think it's really important, as you said, to to acknowledge people when, when we're going through that. And for people that are going through it ourselves to say, okay, I have feelings about this and I need to process them because I love what you talk about. Like when you go to bed at night, that's where you can't hide anymore. That's where that's where all those thoughts start to come back to you. And as you're trying to calm, quiet your mind down, that's that's when they come out
2: yeah exactly that and and interestingly as well is even those experiences for example of a child leaving home to go to university as an adult um people will actually have dreams at that point that their child has died and you can you can imagine you know um uh, it, it it just creates that that feelings of devastation and actually people worry that that means that dream is going to come true and actually the 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 dream is more likely a reflection of that feeling of loss you know that devastation of the feeling of loss, even though, and that's one of the things I emphasize in the book about how grief shows up, even if no one has died and it can show up in our dreams as much as it can with our lack of sleep.
0: Yes. And I I think it's an excellent point you made in the book about those dreams of of a loss of someone or an impending disaster or something. So talk about, about that. If I have a dream where someone's died, how should I take that?
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
2: So in the book, I, I talk about these different types of lost dreams that people have, and, and they can show up, like I say, in different ways. They can show up as we dream about the death of a loved one. And, and actually, that's more likely a fear of loss, a fear of losing that person. Of course, some people, um, as you know, they will have dreams about that person that has died and they will um, you know, they will have that experience where they are dreaming about their loved one who has died. And those are what we refer to as visitation dreams, where the person that we've loved and lost appears to in a dream they appear to us perhaps healthy and well and they're reassuring us that everything's going to be okay um and those are very beautiful very spiritual um, and quite powerful dreams actually in the terms of our recovery and and how we find our way forward so death dreams can can show up in many different ways and and the most traditional meaning of a death dream i.e dreaming about someone um, that hasn't died but we're dreaming that they've died is um, is about change and it's about recognising change and how it shows up. So for many people, if they're having a dream about a loved one that they really care about and they've dreamt that that person has died, then I I hope to reassure them that often it's it's more about change and recognising those changes than it is about um, anything that's, that's likely to come true or anything that's likely to happen for them. That's not to say that people don't have dreams that come true I've spoken to many people who have, but um, at the same time, death dreams in particular, they're more often recognizing those changes that we're navigating, even without anybody dying.
0: Yeah. And in the book, you you talked about like these dream dictionaries and interpreting dreams. And I thought it was you did a really, really good job with that, because the thing about dreams and I kind of I think this was in the book, but I kind of came away with it is that there, first of all, the different types of dreams, right? So there are dreams that are just dreams, you know? So there are dreams that might be, they might be premonitions. Um, there are dreams that I think are visits um, mm-hmm. or where our loved ones visiting us. Um, and there, there are literal dreams. And then there are symbolic dreams, which is, I think what makes it so hard to, to interpret them because they can, they come, they're just not really rational the way we think.
2: Yeah, you're so right. And and I talk about this in the book. One of the things I was very careful to say in Answers in the Dark is that it's not a dream dictionary. I've spoken to enough people over the last two decades to know that dream dictionaries can be helpful. You know, they, they can offer some insight, they can offer some wisdom. But we as the dreamer, we have our own unique code that has been encrypted. And so our dreams really are speaking to us. That's what makes them So important is that only we essentially can decode them. Yes, you could go to someone and say, I've had this dream. What do you think it means? Can I work through it with you? And that might be helpful. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, these dream dictionaries, they're they're only helpful to a point. I I say to people, you're perhaps just getting one bite of the apple if you use uh, a dream dictionary to analyse your dreams in the book I talk about how we can explore our own dreams and look to decode them ourselves but also offer those different experiences you described so I talk about visitation dreams I talk about predictive dreams and and how they might show up for people but I'm also careful to say that ultimately as the dreamer you're the best person to decide what your dream means they are encrypted so that only you can understand them and that then needs a toolkit you know and that's, that's hopefully what I offer in the book is kind of like some insight as to the types of things that you can think about you know questions you could ask yourself when you're having that dream but you were so right what you said as well sometimes dreams can be literal and sometimes uh, dreams can be metaphorical or symbolic they can they can show up in all types of ways and so often when I've spoken to a dreamer and I've said when you think about that symbol you've just described to me. What do you think about? What, what kind of comes to your mind? And so often they'll just instinctively start telling me what their dream means without me kind of doing anything. You know, they, they're just instinctively telling me what their dream means, but they didn't realise they knew until they started to unpack it and and explore it for themselves. So, yeah, there's, there's so many different ways of looking at dreams. And one of the things I talk about even in the book is creative dreaming. So, There's people throughout history that have literally created their works of art by the dreams that they had you know i mentioned in in the book kind of in a jokey way about keith richard's dreamt the rift to i can't get no satisfaction for the rolling mm-hmm. stones mm-hmm. and that's just one example um you know people throughout history have come up with their scientific discoveries through the dreams that they had so they are just this phenomenal resource that we have that that are, so often goes unexplored but if we just take the time to look at them you know we can be really blown away by the profound wisdom they can bring
0: Right. So let's talk about how we can be more intentional about our dreams, because I know that there are people um, and my wife actually for a long time would say, I don't dream. Mm. And I'm like, you have to dream. Everybody dreams. So how do how do we become more intentional about our dreams? What what are some things we can do so we can remember our dreams better? Because we all dream, but sometimes we don't remember them.
2: Yeah and and one of the things I explore in answers in the dark is uh, that there are many reasons why we might not be remembering our dreams. You're absolutely right. We all dream every single night. It's just that we might not be remembering them. So, um one of the reasons we don't remember our dreams is that we perhaps have grown up in an environment where we just don't see dreams as important. You know, certainly again in the UK, we're we're brought up to believe that dreams don't mean anything you know so often you know a parent would say if you had a nightmare a parent would say oh don't worry about it it doesn't mean anything and yet we know that's not the case we know that we can interpret our dreams and make sense of them so but if you've grown up in that environment where you were told your dreams don't mean anything just ignore them then you're less likely to remember them it makes sense when you get up in the morning you're just not going to be thinking about the dream you've had the night before For other people, though, it is because of the busy world that we live in, you know, even post pandemic, we're still, uh, you know, going at 100 miles an hour all day, every day. And so if the first thing you're thinking about in the morning when you wake up is where you've got to be, who you've got to see, what you've got to do you're less likely to remember the dream you've just had. You might have a sort of faint echo of it. There might be a faint echo of it in your mind. And that's one of the reasons why I encourage keeping a dream diary. So you can actually start to firstly just keep a note of the types of dreams you're having, but also explore patterns in your dreaming. You will start to see patterns in your dreaming and why you dream certain things when you do. So, yeah, to be more intentional with our dreams, really, it's about firstly and foremost is is kind of saying, do you know what? There's something to dreams. There's something that I could use these as an additional resource, as as an unexplored resource. So even just going to bed at night when you're going to bed, if you just say to yourself, I'd really like to remember my dreams tonight, maybe even keep a diary or a pen and paper by your bed that kind of sets that intention that when you wake up, you want to remember it. And then you will find over time that starts to happen. You know, it might not happen straight away, but certainly within a few days, you might find that you start to remember even just the echoes of a dream you've just had. And then when you wake up in the morning, it's just laying still, just noticing um, all the kind of thoughts or the sensations or the feelings that are going through your mind and just keeping a note of them. If you don't write your dream down within about five minutes of waking, it will just disappear into the ether. Unless something happens later in the day when you think, oh, I've just remembered my dream, then um, there's, there's a good chance it will just disappear. So it won't go into your long term memory unless you write it down.
0: Do you is is there a scientific reason why dreams fade so quickly? Um, that, that they seem to be like, like as you said, almost ethereal. It's like they're they're just we wake mm-hmm. up, we have vague memories. Something might trigger us later in the day, but if if we don't like really ruminate on that dream when we first wake up, it just kind of fades away.
2: Yeah. So I, I once read a piece of research that said if we remembered every single dream we had, our brains would be so big, we would need to carry it around in a shopping cart. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that was that kind of does make the point that we're not meant to remember every dream that we've ever had. Um, but uh, at the same time, I do think that there is something to be said for. Paying attention to them, you know, when they are particularly noisy or when they're trying to get our attention. So an example of that is recurring dreams. People will often have a recurring dream over their lifetime, or certainly during periods of stress. And so that's where those dreams will will kind of start to get our attention, and we might decide that we want to explore them. But yeah, I don't think we're we're designed to to remember every single dream that we had. Um, but I think certainly the ones that are important, they're worth exploring and and maybe pushing into longer. Term memory by writing them down and exploring them in a bit more detail yeah
0: you know and i also think it's interesting that um you know we said dreams are unique and dreams are that can be situational and we have to, we have our, each have our own language our own dream language but yeah. there are some common dreams and you and you talk about some of those in the book so explain because people that haven't studies may not realize that the dreams i'm having are similar to the dreams other people have
2: yeah. So again, I talk about a few of these in the dreams. Some of them there are common dreams that people have after a bereavement, for example. So um, one of the most common dreams that people will have after a bereavement is that they're lost and they can't find their way home, or they can't find their car, or they can't find you know something that is has personal meaning to them. So that feeling of lost, if you like, is is the representation of loss. Literally feeling lost in the world and just not knowing where they belong or where they fit in. So that's one example. But another type um, certainly of anxiety dreams that people have a really common one that I've spoken to people about over the years is that they dream about losing their teeth. And this is actually another uh, common dream that people have if they are fear, if they're fearful of loss. So in some cultures and some traditions the interpretation of the tooth dream is different depending on which parts of the world you go to mm-hmm. the interpretation of the tooth dream is different so um in the uk and i think it's the same in in the us if you um lose a teeth a tooth as a child uh, you exchange it for money so we have the tooth fairy and and we might exchange our tooth for money with with that perspective so if that is our tradition if that is the the environment that we've grown up with where during during the day if our if our tooth has fallen out we would exchange it for money then teeth would symbolise that feeling of loss of status or it's something to do with money or wealth or status. Whereas in other parts of the world, um, to dream of losing a tooth is a, a fear of losing a loved one. You know, if you like, the tooth is bone, bone represents the body. Um, and so for some parts of the world, to dream of losing a tooth is is a fear of losing a loved one. Um, and so again, you can understand why people get nervous about that. You, they, they get understandably nervous about dreams of losing teeth because, of their their tradition of believing that it's something to do with the the death of a loved one. So yeah, common dreams are, it's one of the reasons I encourage people to keep a dream diary because you will find that there are patterns in your dreaming over time. I've, I've kept a dream diary for years And I remember um, when I was first starting out on this journey about 20 years ago, and and I just wasn't sure about where I fitted in and and what I was going to be doing. I knew I wanted to go into this arena, but I wasn't sure where I fitted in. And it was only years later when I look back at my dream diary, and I am talking about sort of 15, 20 years ago, that um, I saw that I kept having this recurring dream that I couldn't find a parking space. So that if you like the the parking space was the symbol for me trying to find where I fit in. Uh, and so and it was only by looking at that, it was only when I started to realise I kept having this recurring dream of, of trying to find a parking space that I realised that that's what I was navigating at the time. So that's how dream diaries could just be so valuable to help us understand, you know, where we're where we're going, what we're doing and what's happening.
0: Yeah. And a couple other dreams that you talked about in, in, in the book, which, which I've had, like, I, I have a dream a lot of times of like being back in school. Mm. I, I'm sitting there, I'm given an exam and I haven't been in that, that room a day in my life. Or I'm walking through the hallway and I know I'm supposed to be going to class, but I don't know what class I'm going to. Or yes. I'm at an airport and I'm catching a plane, but I have no idea what time the plane is coming. Um, I, I've had that dream since I was a little kid
2: yeah i know it's fascinating and and again this is where the dream diary can be really useful because often people find especially where they've had a recurring dream that they've had their whole life so since since school they will um they will be able to notice that there's a pattern to it. So sometimes people will find that they have the dream that they're back at college taking an exam that they weren't ready for. So they've they've arrived, as you said, they're in the classroom. They don't know why they're there. They don't know what they're studying for. Then they're told that they've got an exam that they just weren't ready for. And so often that is representative of a period of stress. So just as when you were back at school, maybe taking your exams or studying for a test, you, you would have felt an element of stress around that. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like the, the dream imprints, you know, imprints on our memory or that, that memory of school imprints in our minds so that the next time you feel stressed, it's almost as if your dream a bit like a friend coming along and saying, you remember how stressed you were at college? You're that stressed now. Hmm. And so it's almost like the dream is reassuring you that you know you've been here before, you've you've got through this before, you're going to be fine. But I'm just reminding you that you're as stressed now as you were then. Wow. And so that's again where the yeah that's like, that's where the dream diary can be helpful.
0: Uh, wow, I never have thought of that way, and I love I love that interpretation of it also because um, like I said I had the dream, but it seems random because I don't keep a diary of it. It's just like every once in a while I'll have I'll have that dream. Um, so yeah, that's, the, like I said, the thing about the book, it really prompted me to think about, cause there's several, and we don't have time to go through all of them right now, but I'm like, I've, I've had all these dreams, you know, I'm like, and I didn't, I thought I was the only one, but I do want to talk about flying dreams. Cause I think flying dreams are really cool. And I didn't realize how common those Back were. To
1: grief to growth in just a few seconds. Did you know that Brian is an author and a life coach? If you're grieving or know someone who is grieving, his book, grief to growth is a best selling easy to read book. That might help you or someone you know. People work with Brian as a life coach to break through barriers and live their best lives. You can find out more about Brian and what he offers at the number 2 growthcom or text GROWTH, G-r-o-w-t-h to 31996. If you'd like to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash grief to growth, www.patreon.com G-R-I-E-F, the number two, G-R-O-W-T-H, to make a financial contribution. And now, back to Grief to Growth. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Hi there, I'm really excited to tell you about my latest ebook. It's four lessons that you can learn from the near-death experience without going through all the trouble of dying to learn them. wwwgriefthenumber 2 growthcom slash NDE lessons. I hope you enjoy it.
2: Yeah. So I mean, in in when I've been talking to people again around the world, when I've spoken to people, there are these kind of real almost like a top three or a top five common dreams that people have. One is um, the uh, the losing tooth dream and the other one is uh, another one is this flying dream. And what's been so interesting about the flying dream when I've spoken to people? I don't know when you have your flying dream. How are you flying in your dream? What how did, what does it look like?
0: Well, the way you describe in the book, it's more like Superman, but it's yeah. kind of like Or or sometimes it's not even flying. It's just like floating. Like I could just, I'll be like in a crowd of people and I'll just rise up about 20 feet in the air and just kind of move along.
2: Yeah, I love that. And and so when I've spoken to people over the years, there's been almost two people are never quite the same. So there'll be people that associate with the, you know, like Superman and you're going through the air that way. Um, and then there will be other people. Um, so when I fly in my dreams, I fly like Iron Man. So yeah. I have I have thrusters in my hands and I can, if I push the thrusters down, I go up, and if I let the thrusters off, I come down. If I lean forward, I go forward, if I lean back, I slow down. So um, it, it's really interesting because I've spoken to people over the years who and these are the flying dreams where you're literally flying. You're not it's not in an aeroplane. You are you are literally flying as mm-hmm. if you know you are Superman. And, um, and and so many people I've met people that swim doing breaststroke or, you know, front crawl um, like they're swimming, but they're actually swimming through the air. And the interpretation for that, again, has been varied over time. For some people, it's um, they're not feeling grounded. So it, there's something about, there's something happening in their life at the time that they just don't feel connected. They don't feel grounded. It's almost as if there's just no space between their uh, their, their feet. There's nothing underneath their feet. They mm-hmm. feel groundless. But for other people, um, and I use the metaphor deliberately, we would consider them to be high flyers or high achievers. Um, and life is just great. So they will have these flying dreams where, you know, that life is just they're soaring through the sky um, and, and experiencing that flying dream. So, again, it's different for everybody. And, and again, that's where the dream diary can be useful because you might be able to connect with with why you have the dreams where you do. And we do use metaphors when we're awake. We say things like, oh, you know what? I'm just flying at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so that makes sense that it would show up in our in our dreams at night. Same way as if, you know, oh, I'm just floating on cloud nine. You know, we say things like that. That makes sense when you when you think about it, that that would then translate into a dream about that at night.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's just interesting that so many people have a flying dreams when obviously we can't fly. <laughs> that, yeah. that we've, we've never flown before, but I, I know the feeling. I know what it would feel like if I could, because I've done it so many times.
2: Exactly that.
0: So I want to talk about um, insomnia, because insomnia, uh, how big of a problem is insomnia?
2: So we know now that insomnia is a global problem and um, organisations like the World Health Organisation, um, certain research uh, recognises something like one in five of us globally. So about 20 percent of the world's population suffer with insomnia. And when I talk about insomnia, I'm talking about trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. And certainly over a period of time. One of the things I'm careful to talk about in Answers in the Dark is that it's quite normal for us to have periods of poor sleep if you've got a new baby in the house um you know if you've just had a relationship breakdown it's quite normal and you're you are built to withstand a period of poor sleep nothing bad is going to happen if you have the occasional poor night's sleep it's more when it starts to interfere with our everyday life and of course the problem with that is we know that if we have a poor night's sleep that affects how we feel during the day and if how we feel during the day is anxious or upset that's going to affect how we sleep or not at night so it becomes this vicious cycle you know we don't sleep because we're not doing okay and we're not doing okay so we don't sleep so inevitably what that means is that um, it's becoming an increasing problem and some people you know they are quick to say that the um introduction of technology, the availability that we have to people twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, using our phones all the time, you know that that does have an impact, and that's fair to say, and I do talk about that um, a little bit in the book, mm-hmm. but I also think we need to recognize, like I was saying earlier we we need to recognize the circumstances that we might be navigating at the time. it's not just you know, using your phone or it's not just drinking coffee that's stopping people having a a bad night's sleep. Most people that I speak to know that they need to cut down on coffee or, you know, they need to, to get an earlier night. Um, but it's because of this, what I was describing earlier, this going down the plug hole at night, you know, when you're just so immersed in your own thinking that that for me, um, you know, and I talk about in the book, there's some research that identifies that when we're awake at night, because we then start to worry and now I'm not sleeping and what am I going to be like in the morning? I'm going to be so tired tomorrow. And we kind of start getting caught up in those thoughts as well. And so, of course, we don't sleep. And, and so for me, I think, yes, we do need to talk about, you know, the the basic stuff about the coffee and, and what have you. But I think we also need to talk about what's contributing towards that. And so much of it is what's happening in our minds at
0: night. Yeah, so I loved about the book, because you, you talk about sleep hygiene, which are things that we, we kind of know, we don't, sometimes we don't do them, but we kind of know what they are. <laughs> um, but if you're not sleeping, that's not the only reason, and I love you. You talk about the situational insomnia and the fact that our minds can can tend to be racing. And one of the things I learned a while ago about you know not being able to sleep is, for me, do not look at the clock mm-hmm. because if you wake up in the middle middle of the night because that starts that cycle. I'm, I'm, this, I don't want to out anybody, but some people like they'll they'll look at the clock and then they'll start calculating. And you say this in the book. Yeah. How long do I have to get to sleep? And then it's like. And then you look at the clock again, it's like, well, now I only have this long to get to sleep. And next thing you know, you're keeping yourself awake, worrying about the fact that you can't sleep.
2: Exactly that. And and it's um, in the book, I I explore these three big myths of sleep. And Mm. one of the myths in the sleep is that I talk about how we are just fixated with time as humans now in the 21st century. We are fixated with time and specifically we hate wasting time. So I've genuinely, I talk about this in the book, I've genuinely known people who have said to me that they woke up in the middle of the night, they couldn't get back to sleep. And so they've cleaned their entire house or they've done their ironing or something because they don't want to waste time. Time. And so trying to encourage people that actually, firstly, and most importantly, it's quite natural to wake up in the middle of the night. Your brain is wired with this lovely sentinel reflex that is almost like a bodyguard that's just kind of, you wake up in the middle of the night and your brain is just saying, everything okay? Yep, everything's fine. And then you should just be able to go back to sleep. But because, like you were talking about, like it says in the book, we get caught up in this, oh no, it's it's this time and I, I'm only going to get, you know, X amount of sleep you know and then we start to calculate it you know this idea that we need eight hours is just such a myth because everybody is different some people need six hours some people need nine hours if you're poorly you know if you're sick you're going to need more sleep so but we've got so fixated with this idea that we need eight hours sleep that if we don't get the eight hours sleep we, we think, you know, when we wake up in the night, we think, Oh, no, I'm not going to get my eight hours. And of course, then we start again, we go down the plug hole again with this, this kind of catastrophic thinking about how bad it's going to be if we don't sleep. And ironically, that stops us sleeping. There is no way your brain is going to authorize sleep. If you are, you know, tying yourself in knots about how much sleep you're going to get.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the three big myths of sleep. What, what are the three myths?
2: So in the book, I talk about um, these three big myths of sleep. And, and the first one that I really kind of unpack is this eight hour myth. It's the mm-hmm. idea that um, we, we all need eight hours uh, sleep uh, every single night. And, and we know that's that's every time I've spoken to somebody about this, they'll say, actually, you know, I, I get by just fine on seven hours or I get by, um, you know, with, with, with nine. Nine is good for me. And actually, the research also supports that even if we did all need eight hours sleep, we're not getting it you know the research supports that most people i know certainly don't get 8 hours sleep mm-hmm. so um this this whole thing about we need 8 hours sleep is is a big myth and i and i really try to unpack that that's not to say that we don't need Um, You know, time to sleep. But I, I say in the book, I talk about focusing on quality rather than quantity. So instead of getting caught up in this idea that you need eight hours, just focus more on getting a good quality, refreshing night's sleep. The other myth that are, that the second myth that I explore is um, that it's unnatural to wake up at night and that we, um, you know, we've got ourselves caught up in this idea that, you know, we're meant to sleep for this eight hour solid chunk in the middle of the night. Um, and I really think that's that I, I talk in the book about the research that that supports the fact that we just weren't built that way. I mean, it would be lovely if we could split our days very neatly into these three sort of blocks of eight where we've got eight hours for work eight hours for play and eight hours for sleep that would be really convenient but we're just not wired that way you know we are designed to some extent for polyphasic sleep we're meant to kind of we wake we go to bed we wake up we go back to sleep again so um this idea that we have this solid eight hours sleep whilst yes it would be very convenient um for many people the fact that they wake up in the night they think they're doing something wrong they think oh well i i, I must have got this wrong you know i must i must have done something wrong um and so they they end up invariably laying awake because they think and now i've done something wrong and and now i can't sleep and then the other thing i talk about in uh, the other myth i talk about is the fact that bedtime is not a specific time and this links into the other two myths which is so what tends to happen is say i have to be up at six in the morning if i've bought into this eight hour myth I will say, right, I've got to be up at six in the morning. I'm going to subtract eight hours so that I get my eight hours sleeping. So I need to be in bed by 10 Mm o'clock. And we're just not built that way. We are just not built that way where we can program ourselves, you know, like robots to to say to ourselves, okay, I've got to get to bed at 10 o'clock because and I've got to be asleep by 10 because I've got to be up at six in the morning. What tends to happen and what I encourage in the book is that you start to notice when what we call sleep pressure builds. So that is when you start to feel sleepy. You know, your head starts nodding, your eyes start drooping. That is essentially when it's time to go to bed. So often when I say to people, when do you go to bed? They'll say to me, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, one thirty, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, actually, the answer I'm looking for is when I'm sleepy. That's, that's when we should be going to bed. And so that's not always easy, of course, people work shifts. Um, I, do, I, I speak with police officers and paramedics and they tell me that that's not easy when you've got to work a night shift um but nevertheless that's another reason I talk in answers in the dark I talk about power naps and the power of naps as well and how you can you can kind of refresh yourself if, if you're working shifts and things so yeah those are essentially the the three big myths the eight hour myth is just ditch the myth you know if you think that um everybody is different focus on quality rather than quantity um kind of get used to the idea that you you may well wake up in the middle of the night and if you do that's natural that's your brain working you can just roll over and go back to sleep try not to indulge the commentary that you've done something wrong to wake up mm-hmm. and then the third thing is yeah just go to bed when you're sleepy rather than thinking okay I've I've got to be up at, at six in the morning I'm going to work back eight hours and, and be in by by 10 because you might find that you're wide awake at 10 o'clock that might not be your natural sleep time
0: yeah i think that's great but you know but you, you did touch touch the fact that we are so driven by the clock right <laughs> so I, if i might not get sleepy till midnight but i know i have to be up at six so mm-hmm. that that's going to put a stress on me but i want to something that i got out of uh, the book that i thought was um i've heard about sleep cycles all my all my life and i, I knew that we'd go through these different sleep cycles But let's talk about sleep cycles specifically and why that might be why we wake up during the night because I never heard it put that way.
2: Yeah, so in the book, I, I refer to sleep a bit like a bus. Um, and essentially, if you don't get on the bus when it comes round, so in other words, when you feel sleepy, you will miss the bus, you'll push through it. And so you'll then find um, that you're you're not sleepy again for a, another hour, hour and a half or so. And the, the sleep cycle, the way it works, it is shorter in children. For children, it can be, you know, 45 to 60 minutes. But in adults, predominantly, it's an hour and a half to two hours, depending on, you know the individual Mm -hmm. and so um, one of the things that I talk about is is getting to know your sleep cycle so if you know that you've got to be up at six in the morning or thereabouts then if you know you start to feel sleepy at say 10 o'clock then you could if you know that your personal sleep cycle is about an hour and a half then you can work forward and work out the best time to set your alarm so instead of setting your alarm for six o'clock, which might actually be when you're in the middle of deep sleep and you'll wake up, I talk about this in answers in the dark as the hangover effect, you wake up in the middle of deep sleep, your mouth is dry, you've got a banging headache. Um, that's why it's called the hangover effect. Mm-hmm. Um, you, instead of that, you just work forward, working out what your, your sleep cycle is you can just work forward and work out, okay, well, I'm going to be naturally waking up or naturally kind of coming towards the end of one particular sleep cycle at 5.30. So instead of setting my alarm, when I'm going to be in the middle of deep sleep, I'm going to set my alarm for when I know that I'm going to be naturally wakeful anyway. So I'm not, wrenching myself out of sleep so yeah that's that's essentially where I'm coming from with the sleep cycles is getting to know yourself a bit better recognizing that sleep is like a bus if you miss the bus you're going to have to wait for the next one which when I talk to people it's about an hour and a half later um and but just know that it will come you know the bus will come back it's just you're going to have to make sure that you're setting yourself up for a better night's sleep so doing all the right things before bedtime like winding down less caffeine, those kinds of things so that you start to feel naturally sleepy. And then, um, and then, yeah, working out when you would naturally be awake based on, and I provide a, a kit in the, in the book about how to work out those kind of patterns when you wake up naturally and, and that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've noticed. And for me, it's like, uh, it's like when I wake up on the weekends when I don't have an alarm, you know? Um, and I, and so like I, I get up, my alarm goes off at six. Mm-hmm. But I'm. I, I found I'm getting into light sleep sometime between five thirty and six. That's that's where I feel like that's why I'm waking up kind of naturally. Yeah. And it's interesting because if I do go back to sleep during that time, then I fall into a heavy sleep. You know, mm-hmm. instead of getting up when I'm in that in that light light sleep cycle. So I, I really love that about the book, and I love the fact that now we know that it's it's normal to wake up during the night because as you said, a lot of us think that. We're doing something wrong. I should just go to bed, be knocked out, wake up, you know, that many hours later. Um, mm-hmm. but that's a that's a normal part of our our sleep cycle, which I I had known before.
2: Yeah, so when we come to the end of our sleep cycle, we are naturally moving into a sort of a wakeful period. Some people don't even know that they've done that during the night. Some people will wake up in the morning and say, gosh, I had, you know, a great eight hours sleep last night, not realizing that they will have entered these wakeful periods just the night. They just don't remember it. Um, But for some people, of course, they do. They they know that they woke up in the night. They remember that they woke up in the night. And of course, then if they buy into this narrative that they shouldn't be awake, that That's when they start beating themselves up and saying, oh, no, what's wrong with me? Why am I awake? So that's where I try and encourage people to remember it's just your brain working normally. I mean, that's not to say, you know, if people are just waking up every 20 minutes or so, you know, or if they're, you know, they're just not sleeping at all, then, of course, they they should go and, and talk to someone about that and get the help that they need. But I think we do need to normalize to some extent, you know, the idea that it's quite natural to wake up in the night, not least of all, as I mentioned in the book, because you might need the loo, you know, you might need the toilet um, mm-hmm. and, and mother nature is, is not going to wait for anybody. So, you know, you, if you've got to go, you've got to go. So your your brain and your body is just working as it's meant to during the night. And if you can kind of get used to that, the idea that it's just responding to, to whatever else is going on in the environment, then um, sometimes we can just roll back over and say, yeah, this is normal. I'm just going to go back
0: to sleep. Yeah. I think that's going to help a lot of people because as I said, I think people, we, we think, okay, there's something wrong. We wake up, we look at the clock, we start doing the calculation. Um, for me, it's it's just so freeing to know it's it's normal for me to wake up during the night and, and I can, you know, and that's just part of the natural sleep cycle. And speaking of that you use the term in the book, I'd never heard before orthosomnia, Yeah, um, which, so I want you to explain to people what orthosomnia is.
2: So orthosomnia is where a person has got so fixated on the amount of sleep that they are getting that has created its own form of anxiety. So um, this is where uh, people, for example, use trackers, sleep trackers that are attached to their wrist. And then they will wake up in the morning and they will look to see how much sleep they got, when they woke up, um, whether or not it was deep sleep, whether or not it was uh, light sleep. And they become so fixated on that particular um, that, that analysis, that result, that it is creating its own form of anxiety. Um, and so this is quite a new thing. This is, this is quite a new thing. And it's and some attribute it directly to the um, creation of these trackers. And so this is one of the reasons I say to people, the best way to know whether or not you had a refreshing night's sleep or not is how you feel. Mm-hmm. it's it's not what your what your fitness tracker says it's it's how you feel and um, but some people have got so um kind of caught up that it's created its own anxiety that they start to then think oh you know I'm not sleeping enough I'm not I'm not getting enough quality sleep or, or what have you and instead really we're, we're kind of tuning out to listening to our own bodies when our body you know our body is speaking to us all the time it's telling us that we're thirsty we're hungry we're tired um and and so yeah the the idea that we've got so caught up in how much sleep we're getting and how many times we woke up and whether it was deep sleep or or not um yeah it's created its own anxiety which which is becoming a real problem for some people
0: yeah and you know you having said that I, i used to have a fitbit and i had the fitbit and it's got the sleep tracker on it and then you could get apps that were even more detailed yeah and and i and i know people who would get all caught up with like this is how many hours of sleep I got. I didn't get enough sleep, and why was I in light sleep then? I want I want that to be deep sleep. I want to always be you know in deep sleep, and that's that's not the normal cycle. So I do have an Apple Watch now. Just uh, I, I want to say to Apple about Apple. People asked them why don't you have more detail in your sleep app, and they said the exact they didn't use the word orthosomnia, but they're like we don't want to contribute to that because people were getting too caught up in you know not everything that can be measured i guess should be by by exactly by that kind of data because we don't understand our own bodies and our own sleep cycles and yeah. speaking of sleep cycles i know we talked about sleep hygiene a little bit let's talk about what is the sleep cycle repair kit
2: So the Sleep Cycle Repair Kit is essentially my offering of different ways that people can start to think about how they might be able to improve their sleep. One of the things I talk about in Answers in the Dark is that when I talk to people about why they're not sleeping well, they will, um, they know, like I said earlier, they know all about the sleep hygiene stuff, you know, the the tips, the, the, the habits that we have during the day that might stop them sleeping at night. So they're exercising too late or they're eating too late or they're drinking too much coffee. So most people know, but I've still offered some sort of top tips and I've actually offered um, a sleep hygiene type questionnaire so people can actually look at their um, their habits during the day and see whether or not they might be able to improve those areas in in some way, shape or form. So that's part of the kit. But the other part of it as well is it moves into talking about some of the nighttime phenomena that we have. So that might explain some of the um, experiences they have, which again, we can often normalize as we're going through a period of stress or something like that um, but I also offer mindfulness activities um, and in my work over certainly over the last 10 years I have found that um sleep is a proven uh, mindfulness is a pl- proven strategy for getting a better night's sleep and if once we know how to do it you know and, I, and I'm not talking about the mindfulness stuff that we you know those those kind of short-term um tricks that we might use I'm talking about the authentic um which is the way that I was trained the authentic mindfulness where we really kind of get used to this idea that thoughts are just thoughts they don't need our time and attention we can pick and choose which thoughts get our time and attention and so authentically kind of looking back at at, at what it actually means to be mindful and and then kind of picking our battles making decisions and good decisions about which thoughts get our time and attention so I talk about that I talk about the mind at night and how we can um, start to manage the mind more helpfully and um, and that is using different types of mindfulness activity and, and different types of mindfulness tips. So um, I use things like mantras and affirmations that people can repeat to themselves during the night. And um, a lovely one that I talk about, which is actually specifically for middle of the night waking, there's a beautiful mantra called um, "Breathing in, I calm my body; breathing out, I calm my mind." And that is just such a lovely mantra to say in the middle of the night. You know, if your mind is swirling with all types of things. Just saying those words in your mind can be enough to just bring you back to center and, and just help you get off to a lovely, refreshing sleep.
0: Yeah, I think that's so, so important. I, I've discovered that myself in the last few years, that uh, mindfulness is really the thing because our minds our minds are meant to be thinking. That's what they do. And, and I know a lot of people, when they think about mindfulness and meditation, they think it means turning your brain off. And, mm-hmm. and we can't do that. Right. So we you've got to kind of give your brain something to do. So you, you a mantra is a, is a great way of doing that. Or if you practice mindfulness during the day, learning how okay, I'm not, I'm, I just refuse to have this thought. I'll have this thought tomorrow and put that thought out of your head. I was in, um, hurt my hip a couple of weeks ago. I was in a lot of pain. I was trying to fall asleep, and the the pain was just I couldn't get comfortable. And so I finally just decided to really focus on the pain. This is kind of a different way of doing it. instead of taking my mind off the pain. I really focused on the pain and what the pain really was. And then it started to fade, you know, it it was still there, but I was, it wasn't all consuming. And then I said, okay, now that I've done that, I'll switch my mind to something else. And I was able to fall asleep and it was really cool. It's Uh, amazing,
2: isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. It it seems so counterintuitive to say, well, I'm going to focus on this thing that's really hurting me. And yet, and this is what I say to people. And it's the same with emotion, you know, whether we, give the feeling a name or not, it's there anyway. So one of the things I talk about in in the book is that mindfulness is about managing the mind. It's not about clearing the mind. It's about managing and taming the mind and bringing it back home. You know, my my teacher said to me, you know, a mind that is homeless is going to be distressed. Anything that's homeless is going to be distressed. Mm -hmm. So we just need to bring the mind back home. And one of the ways of doing that, like you said, is just bringing our attention and just focusing on that feeling, but without getting caught up in the commentary about it. So whether it's physical or emotional pain we just notice that it's there but without getting caught up in the commentary about why it's there so whether it's physical pain like you said and it's I I totally get it you know for people that would be saying that feels totally wrong to to totally focus on that pain that I'm experiencing right now but that's why I say to people you're not focusing on the why the pain is there right. you're noticing that on the fact that the pain is there because it's there anyway right. whether you acknowledge it whether you give it a name whether you focus on it or not, it's there anyway. So it is that whole thing about, there's an element of acceptance to it. There's an element of recognizing and acknowledging it's there, but then giving ourselves permission to not get caught up in that dialogue about why it's there. So the way I describe it in the book is it's about becoming the observer of what's happening to us rather than the participant.
0: Yeah. And and then another technique that I've used is like, okay, so you're in a night and you're thinking about, what you need to do the next day because we all we all do that we go to what we should have done before we go to what we need to do the next day and yeah. you know I, I just tell myself okay what can i do about it right now you know what can, and and the answer is always nothing nothing so then just let it go you know so these are these are ways that we can uh we can we can use to control our mind because for most of us it's like our minds are just running around doing what they want to do and especially when we turn off the lights and close our eyes they just go, they go crazy and we're kind of chasing them around.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly that. And and it is, I I say this, um, you know, to people that your, your mind just very much, as you said earlier, your mind just wants something to do. And if you don't give it something to do, it will remind you of an argument you had 20 years ago that you wish you'd said something different, you know, or you'd approached it differently. And it is, It's and it's always, I actually have a chapter in Answers in the Dark, I have a chapter called The 4am Mystery.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to bring that up.
2: Yeah, it's it's this whole thing about, you know, people will say to me, why am I awake in the middle of the night? And again, I say to people, rather than focusing on the why, just notice on the what, you know, the fact that you are awake and what you can do to then help you fall back to sleep, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's using a mantra, however you want to define it. Um, but yeah, it is that whole thing. And, and, and of course, because we find ourselves awake at four in the morning, we then that whole narrative starts again about well, why am I awake? What woke me up? What's going on? Why can't I sleep? I'm going to be so tired in the morning. I'm not going to be able to concentrate, and of course, then we end up like I say, going down the plug hole again. So it just becomes this this vicious cycle. Um, but yeah, the four a.m. mystery is a is a fascinating phenomenon, and um, I, I give examples in the book about how if you watch a movie or uh, you know I think it even features in The Simpsons, you know where where Homer refers to four, 4 a.m. in in one of of his uh, his conversations in his mind and it's that thing um about uh, again different traditions they they say that there's reasons why we have middle of the night waking some people say that it is because that's the time when we're reflecting or we're experiencing loss and grief and that's why we wake up if we're depressed or anxious we do find that we wake up between three and four in the morning um but for other people it will be i mentioned one example in the book it will be something really practical like someone's heating coming on at four in the morning mm-hmm. and and that and that wakes them up, you know. So it it is again. It's about being able to, um, and I give tools for this in the book about just kind of keeping helpful records, so that you can start to think about what those patterns are and and what might be contributing towards that.
0: Well, I, I've heard people say that 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 witching hour that that but somewhere between two and four in the in the morning is when spirit talks to them. And I know for me, that's when I get my best ideas. Um, It's that time, that time somewhere between two and four.
2: Yeah, and I, I say that actually in the book. I talk about that, you know, some people, um, poets, writers, um, creators, don't forget I mentioned Keith Richards and, you know, he had the dream about the rift, so I can't get no satisfaction. Um, and and so, yeah, people throughout history have have had some of their most spiritual um encounters or experiences in the middle of the night. And that's one of the reasons why in the book, I have a chapter called Into Darkness. And it's it's one of the reasons why I try to help people befriend the dark. So rather than seeing it as um, the enemy, actually trying to befriend the dark a little bit and seeing if there is something that it can offer you. I know that for some people, when they find themselves awake at that time of night, that's when they have the most awful thoughts or, you know, they have the most difficult experiences. And that's why I say, you um, you know, it's so important that you just hold on for dawn, you know, just hold on for the morning because things often look so much better in the morning. Um, But, on the other side of that, like I say, there are creators and and you know poets and writers and and all those artists that have had these wonderful moments and as I say, those spiritual moments in the middle of the night, um, and so there is something in in just listening, you know, rather than trying to sort of fix it or or sort it, you know, in a in a way that's unhelpful, is actually just listen and pay attention.
0: Yeah, I love I love that chapter into into the dark. I know you talked about a, a message that you got. It, you know, at that time of the, of the day. Um, so I, I love that that instead of, you know, the thing is, in our society, we've been taught to fear the dark, we've been we've been taught that darkness is bad. And I love that, you know, your, the maybe your book answers in the dark, I love that chapter into the dark, because we can learn to embrace it as a time of, of, of rest, a time of maybe even creativity, a time where new things can be can be born. Uh, and a time where, you know, magical things can happen, like what happened with you.
2: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I talk about my own experience of that in the book. And and to be honest with you, I think most of us, I I was talking to a lady recently who said that she, she hadn't appreciated before that nighttime just brings this beautiful quiet and stillness that we can really just appreciate, even if we're not having profound moments of wisdom, in a world that just doesn't stop there is something quite powerful about appreciating the stillness and the quiet of the middle of the night. I mean, if you're someone that, you know, quiet makes you nervous anyway, then it's going to be harder. Mm-hmm. But if we can learn to appreciate the stillness and the quiet that nighttime can bring, then I think we will find those answers, you know, we can we can work towards them. And for me, you know, I, one of the things I talk about, and I think it will surprise people, is that one of my particular answers was actually a person that, w- mm-hmm. that reached out to me in the middle of the night, it wasn't a dream in that moment, in that mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. moment, it was, um, it was a person that reached out to me in the middle of the night with a poem that I really really needed to read um but but yeah for other people it may well be that they wake up with a dream or they wake up with a profound insight or like you said you know they they have a, a spiritual experience in the middle of the night where they feel connected to the universe you know they feel as if they're part of it and and they feel connected in that way so yeah there's definitely something to be said for for reaching into the darkness
0: well, you know, it's, it reminds me, I think I'm just thinking about my my daughter, when she was a little kid, she said, I hate sleep, it's such a waste of time, I, I will never I wish I had never had to sleep again. Of course, now she sleeps all the time. She's 25. <laughs> but um, what I, what, you know, the thing is, that, and scientifically, I think it's fascinating, that our bodies have to shut down that, that our bodies need that break. And, and you talked about in deep sleep, that's when our bodies do all the repairs and stuff. We yeah. know we need to dream. We know the people that don't dream go, go insane. I mean, literally, you can't you cannot survive without dreaming. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my personal take on it is, we're spiritual beings in these bodies having this human experience. Mm-hmm. We we can't stand it twenty four seven. We we need yeah. a break. And some people say that that's the time when we visit the other side every night when we're sleeping that we're visiting yeah. the other side. So whether you believe that or not, or whether you just really take the night as a a time to reboot, you know, our computers can only run for so long, then they have to be rebooted and, our, and, the, and the human body needs that. So I love this idea of embracing that, you know, and and I know for people, for me, you know, when you're in grief, this is really ironic. A lot of times you look forward to that escape. You look forward to being able to close your eyes and shut down. And that's mm-hmm. when you can't do it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where this book and the, and your techniques and your understanding our understanding really help people to claim that time back.
2: Mm, Yeah, thank you. And that's, that's really where I was coming from with the book. I mean, the book took me around 10 years to write. And and the reason for that was because there was just so much research and so much academic stuff that, that people were kind of shipping out in terms of why we don't sleep and what we need to do differently. And in the end, I just decided to talk about it in a way that I teach it, you know, the way that I talk about it, just as I'm talking to you now, if we can just start to normalize some of our experiences, grief, You know, things like uh, understanding people's grief and recognizing it for what it is. And then recognising that, just as you said, you know, we need that time to rest and and relax. We cannot stay on the treadmill 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We need time to rest and recharge. And so if we can start to normalise some of these conversations, um, and that's how I talk about it in the book, I just, it's like I'm having a conversation with you. I'm just kind of talking about it in the way that I teach it. And and hopefully that will bring people some reassurances that they're not getting grief wrong, that, you know, they're finding their own way forward with a difficult time Um, and that there are things out there that might help.
0: Yeah, I I love the style that you wrote the book in because uh, frankly, it, that's the, a lot of times the subject can be academic and boring. It's mm-hmm. just like you're talking now. You know, it, you've injected humor into it. <laughs> um, you've made it you know really understandable for people that may you know we talk about sleep cycles and REM and you know light sleep and deep sleep. That might that you know, might, might turn some people off, but just understanding that this is normal. We don't just bottle of sleep and we're knocked out for eight hours. And if you wake up in the middle of the night, it may be because you have to go to the bathroom. It may be because your heat kicked on. Um, Some people are very sensitive to to noises. Um, You know, one of the things my wife does is she wears earplugs every night. I was teasing her about it last night. I said, what are you blocking out? And she said, do you hear that like noise way off in the distance? And because we live near train tracks and I'm like, yeah, I hear it, but I just naturally block it out. But her mind goes to whatever she hears. Yeah. Uh, if something's creaking downstairs, you know the house. So, so she wears earplugs, and it helps her to sleep better. So maybe we can learn little tips like that.
2: Yeah, amazing. And I do say, you know, it's it's finding what works for you and doing more of it. That's that's essentially it. it's finding what works for you and doing more of it in a way that feels healthy, you know, and, and if you think if you play the long game and you think to yourself, if I keep doing what I'm doing now, where am I going to be in a year's time? Yeah. Whereas if it's something healthy and helpful, again asking yourself that question, if, if I keep doing what I'm doing now. And this is one of the reasons I say to people just stick with the mindfulness. You know, it's not for everybody and I know that and and certain you have to pick your moments when you're doing mindfulness, especially if there's trauma associated with your experience, then it's, it's always better to speak to someone before you you engage with that. But certainly, you know, try and stick with some of the practices and you might find over time um, that things improve.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Delphi, it's been uh, really wonderful having this conversation with you. Anything you'd like to say as we wrap up today?
2: No, just thank you so much for um, this wonderful time with you today. Thank you so much for holding space with me. And if people do want to um, find out more about the book, it does have its own website. So um, answersinthedark.com is where people can find it.
0: Okay, so it has its own website and your website is delphielis.com. Is that correct? That's
2: it, yeah. that's so They it. can find it book there as well.
0: Yeah, it's Delphi, D-E-L-P-H-I, um, mm. and Ellis is E-L-L-I-S. I, I do recommend the book. I think it's available and I got a pre-release copy. Is it out yet?
2: Yeah, so it's out tomorrow. So um, okay. it's it's on Amazon um, and it's on other it's on other stores as well. So yeah, it's it should be um, out tomorrow.
0: Well, I'm recording this on May 26, which is my birthday, by the way. Um, May 26th, 2022. So by the time you hear this, audience, it will be available on Amazon, and I do highly oh. recommend it. Thank you so much. All right, Delphi. Thanks. Have a great rest of your day.
2: Thank you, Angie. You. Thanks for
1: listening to Grief to Growth. Brian hopes that you find this episode helpful and will come back for future episodes. Brian's best-selling book, Grief to Growth, Planted Not Buried, is a great resource for anyone who is coping with grief or knows someone who is. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support it, there are three things you can do to help. The first is to share the podcast with someone that you think it will help. The second is to go to iTunes, rate and review the episode. The third way you can support the podcast is by becoming a patron. Head over to www.patreon.com slash grief to growth. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot slash grief. The number two, growth, and sign up to make a small monthly donation. Patrons get access to exclusive bonus content and knowledge that you are helping to spread the message of grief to growth. For more about Brian and grief to growth,